I'd invite you this morning uh, to take a Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel text for this morning comes towards the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, beginning this morning at verse 26. If you're able and with us this morning, if you would stand in honor of the Lord's Word, we'll read together Luke 1, 26 through 38. When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God said, sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth a city way up in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. When the angel came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one, woo The Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered what in the world kind of greeting this might be. The angel said, don't be afraid, Mary, for God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Then Mary said to the angel, what? How will this happen, since I haven't had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come over you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman who was labeled unable to conceive is now six months pregnant. For nothing is impossible for God. Then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. Then the angel left her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I uh, have been tickled by a cartoon uh, that has made the rounds on Facebook the last couple of weeks. If you were with us on Wednesday night, I showed it to the group. It's a a one-frame cartoon with three first-century women uh, riding into what looks like Bethlehem or Jerusalem. The first woman is riding on a horse with a bumper sticker on its bottom that reads, Our son is an honor student. The second woman is riding a camel with a bumper sticker on its rear end that says, Our son is a medical student. The third woman on a donkey with a man walking beside her is displaying a bumper sticker that says, Our son is God. To which the first woman is responding sarcastically, well, well, if it isn't Joseph and Mary. Um, I love that cartoon. We often think of the story of the virgin birth of Jesus as a narrative that is meant primarily to prove or validate the divinity of Jesus. We read this story as though it is... um, in our kind of day and age, as though it's a kind of superhero origin story. How did Clark Kent become Superman? How did Diana Prince become Wonder Woman? How did Peter Parker become Spider-Man? How did Jesus become the Messiah? If we're not careful, at Christmas, we think we are telling the story of how a human, Jesus, became God. Christmas if you will, can accidentally become Christian's version of a superhero origin story. Superman fell from Krypton. Wonder Woman emerged from an island of warrior princesses. Spider-Man was bitten by a radioactive spider. Jesus was born of a virgin. 
the first century world was not unfamiliar with superhero origin stories, if you will. Perhaps that's why uh, if you are a fan of Marvel or DC or any of those comics and the films, you'll notice that a lot of those hero stories and those origin stories are actually rooted in Greek and Roman mythology. They're, they're rooted in those ancient sort of God stories. It's not unusual for first century people to think of Caesar as the most august as a godlike person among us because of the power and military might and the economic wealth of Rome caesar is not just a mere mortal but has become a god in our midst rome has made him divine hero origin stories stories of humans becoming godlike again are not uncommon in the first century world but what is uncommon in the christmas story is god becoming human that inversion of the story makes all the difference. Let me say that again. Hero origin stories, stories of humans becoming godlike, are not uncommon in the first century world to which Luke is writing. What is uncommon in the Christmas story is that God has become human. And that inversion of the story makes all the difference. For you see, hero stories invite us to find gods in great acts of power. The Christmas story invites us to find God on the margins. Hero stories are about how isolating and odd it is to live as a god among mere mortals. The Christmas story is about the deep solidarity of God with humanity. Hero stories look for the gods on the battlefield. The Christmas story looks for God in a manger and on a cross. Hero stories live within and reinforce our understanding of how power operates. Just a little spoiler alert. Even if Iron Man dies to save the world, the world isn't changed. It isn't inverted. His power is just passed as a torch to the next generation of hero warriors. But as we heard in Mary's song this morning, the Christmas story uses divine love to subvert our imagination of how the world works. And so most importantly this morning, what I want you to hear is that the Christmas story is not the story of a God who became human in order to teach people how to transcend their flesh and become gods. Let me say that again. Christmas story is not a story about how a God became human in order to teach us how to get out of here and how to transcend our flesh to become gods. The Christmas story is the story of God entering into all the goodness and all the brokenness of humanity in order to heal our flesh and restore us into the image of God we were created to be. Again, the Christmas story is about God entering into all the goodness and all the brokenness of humanity in order to heal our flesh and in order to restore us into the image of God we were created to be. This morning, as I think with you about the virgin birth, so this story is told in two of the Gospels. It's told in the Gospel of Matthew and then it's told in the Gospel of Luke. It's interesting, sometime this week, um, you have five days till Christmas. Sometime this week, uh, 
You should read Matthew's version of it. It's similar in some ways to Luke's version, but Matthew wants to narrate this unique birth of Jesus in especially the imagination of the prophet Isaiah. For Matthew, this unique birth of Jesus is all about how the lineage of David that has been cut off, like the stump of Jesse, if you will, Israel that has no future and no hope apart from some divine intervention, the story is rooted in Isaiah's expectation that God will not allow that death to be the end, but a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. The virgin will conceive and bear a child, and he will be wonderful counselor, prince of peace, all the, all the Messiah stuff. But Matthew tells it in the light of what these prophetic expectations as Matthew retells Israel's story through the life of Jesus. Luke tells us the story, but not through the lens of Isaiah. But Luke tells us the story through some characters that unfortunately, every year when we gather through Advent and Christmas, we tend to forget them. And I always feel bad about it. One of these years, we're going to add them into the manger scene for Christmas Eve. Because sometime this week, read the beginning of Luke. For Luke starts his story not with Gabriel and Mary and Jesus and Joseph and angels and shepherds. They come. But the primary kind of beginning for Luke of the story is an old couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest. Elizabeth is now getting up in years, and she is a barren woman. And Gabriel comes to Zechariah in the temple and tells him that Elizabeth is going to bear a child, and she is going to bear a prophetic child that we will know as John the Baptist. Now, part of what I want you to recognize is if you know the Old Testament at all, something in your heart and in your mind, there should be a bell that's going bing, 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 bing. For it is a story about priests and temples and barren women. It sounds a lot like Abraham and Sarah, but it sounds like an awful lot of other stories in the Old Testament that are filled with priests and temples and barrenness and prophets. And so what we get is we get Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John the Baptist as the final characters in an old story. So in many ways, Luke is taking the Old Testament and using Elizabeth, Zechariah, and John the Baptist as a way of closing out that old story, retelling it in some ways, but bringing that to a glorious conclusion. A story of barrenness, temples, priests, prophets. It's a story where God's, and here's the key line, it's a story where God's faithfulness keeps doing the improbable. The improbable. It's crazy, old people having babies. I have no interest in it, personally, at this point. But it is a story of God's faithfulness in the improbability of life. But what Luke does is he closes out the old story using them, and now Mary arrives on the scene, and she is related to the old story, interestingly. I think it's fascinating in the story that Joseph has lineage to David. We're not told where Mary comes from or what her family lineage is. But she is in some ways, through this relationship with Joseph, related to the old story. 
However, Mary is the first character in a new story. For the child Mary carries is the beginning of a new creation. I love those words, right? The child Mary carries is the beginning of a new creation. And in this story, God's God is faithful not just to do the improbable, but God is faithful to do the impossible. You aren't very excited about that. But again, it's, it's amazing. This old story that happens in familiar places like the temple, this new story happens in a nowhere town called Nazareth. The old story takes place in places like New York and Los Angeles and Chicago. The new story takes place in, in Cuna, <laughs> Weezer, forgotten places, <laughs> a new story of a new creation where God is doing the impossible. On the fourth Sunday of Advent, we rightly reflect on divine love. In Luke's gospel, Jesus does not just come to proclaim divine love, but if you don't get anything else out of this morning, it is this, that Jesus comes as the embodiment of divine love. More than anything, what I'm wanting you to see this morning is Jesus did not become like us in order to get us out. But in Christ, God enters into humanness to heal and restore us to who we were created to be. And that is nowhere that is seen most clearly in divine love. But I need to talk about love for a little bit um, this morning. So Chelsea and I, um, Wednesday night, we had a conversation online about joy and love. Some of you joined, uh, participated in that. And, and no offense to all of us, but English is a terrible language when it comes to love. I don't know why we really only have one good word when it comes to love. And it's problematic. At least in Greek, you got four, maybe five kind of ways of expressing different forms of love. The problem, as we talked about in English, is that we use the same word to talk about our affection for pizza, our affection for uh, the Seahawks, I don't know. Yeah, there you go. Uh, for our affection for our family and children. It seems like we should have different words to at least express that our, our love of certain foods is not quite the same as our love for our spouse or our children or for one another. But especially in this day and age, and I'm going to use a couple of big words here if that's okay. What I want to say this morning is love is not libertarian sentimentality. Love is not libertarian sentimentality. And here's what I mean by that. I think in our culture, we think love is especially in a rugged, individualistic culture, and I know Idaho's very different from that. <laughs> that was my best joke of the day. <laughs> in a culture that is so rugged and individualistic, sometimes we understand love to be leaving the other person alone. <laughs> love is not coercing the other. And there may be an aspect of love to some of that. But love is not libertarian, let people do what they want, and then sort of sentimentally feeling affection for them. That is not love. 
Divine love is the unmerited and unconditional favor that relentlessly pursues the best in and for the other. Divine love is the unmerited and unconditional favor that relentlessly pursues the best in and for the other. God's love is revealed in God's deep solidarity with humankind. This is why we use a text like this on a day where we celebrate love because what we see in the proclamation that God is entering the world through Mary in Christ is this, that God loves the world too much just to simply tell it what to do or let it go its own way. But in, God, in love, God enters into the goodness and brokenness of humankind in order to heal our flesh. No matter what the cost for that is love. So the mystery of the Christmas story is not how God entered into humanness so that we might escape our flesh, but how God entered into humanness in order to redeem our flesh through love. And this means, and here's the key, this means what we celebrate in the story of the virgin birth is that Christian faith and Christian living will always be as much about our heart and our body as it is about our head. Christian life, Christian faith will always be as much about the transformation of our heart in love and our body in action of love towards the other as it is about our head. If I could say it another way, if it was just our, and our head matters, please don't misunderstand me. Our head matters. If we believe the wrong things, we'll inevitably take a wrong turn somewhere. But if all that mattered was for us to get the right things in our head, God could have left the law on stone tablets that we memorize. What we celebrate today is that love entered into flesh in order to redeem our flesh. In order to transform us to be what we were created to be, reflections of the divine love of God, back to God and to each other. And so this morning, as I think about that, I, I want to say a couple of kind of quasi-heretical things, Okay. I don't think they're fully heretical. I just think they're sort of heretical. And here's the kind of sort of heretical thing I want to say. I don't, I really like the creeds, but I don't love them. That's, here's, <laughs> let me flush that out. And please don't stop right now. <laughs> don't log off right now. Um, when I think about the two primary creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, that I love to recite, and by the way, I, I think Christians should memorize. I, I'm a person who's a little bothered that you can do the Pledge of Allegiance without even thinking, but chances are the majority of us in this room could not say the Apostles' Creed. But hey, that's okay. Well, it's not, but anyway, it's a thing. But here's, if you pay attention to either of the creeds, when they get to Jesus, here's essentially what they both say. I, or we believe in Jesus, his son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, so these two, this text this morning makes it into the creed, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and then here's the next line, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. Now here's why I like but don't love the creed. That's a big jump. Yeah. 
From born of the Virgin Mary to suffered under Pontius Pilate. In fact, if you look at Luke, the creed just jumped from Luke chapter 2 to Luke chapter 23. Just left 21 chapters completely out. I'd be offended if I were Luke. It's as though those 21 chapters of the life and ministry, the invitation for people to follow and become disciples of Jesus does not matter. And what I want to quasi-heretically say today is those 21 chapters actually really matter. And it is not enough to sort of confess with one's head the mystery of what it means for one to believe in one who is miraculously born of a virgin. In fact, if we're not careful, we can use that creed to divide us. And miss that the invitation of the gospel is always towards embodiedness. Now, I actually think, Nazarenes, I, I think I come by this heresy naturally. Hang with me for just a minute. If you ever run across a Nazarene manual, open it and go to paragraph 20. You don't have to read very far, just paragraph 20. On paragraph 20, the church of Nazarene gives a very short statement of faith. But it starts this way, recognizing that the right and privilege of persons to church membership rests upon the fact of their being regenerate, we would require only such avowals of belief as are essential to Christian experience, yada, yada. We therefore deem the following brief statements to be, to count. Now, you weren't excited about that, but here's essentially what we're saying. Recognizing that the right and privilege, what binds us together is in the language is the regenerate life, which is a fancy way of saying you are a new creation. What unites us, what bonds us together, what makes us members of the same body is not that we confess the same beliefs and get in fights about them. What unites us is a transformed heart and body in the love of Christ. A people whose lives have been inverted, who've been changed, who have become instruments of divine love in the world. And therefore, as important as those two lines are that we confess, those 21 chapters matter. Because Christ did not just give us a list of things to believe. He gave us a way to follow. An embodied life to imitate. And so here's the second sort of heretical thing I want to say. Because at its core, Christian faith is spirit-empowered, embodied, redemptive life. I sometimes find that I have more in common with those who are living what may be a pale imitation of the way of Jesus than I have with those who affirm the tenets of faith but fail to enter into the way of love. And that, if I'm not here tomorrow, it's because of what I just said. But I'm convinced of it. And I have spent a long time now with young people who constantly ask this question, why is it that I seem to have more in common sometimes with people who are marginally Christian or sometimes not even Christian or maybe of other faiths than I seem to have with some of the people who I've spent my whole life in church with? 
And this morning, I want to say the answer to that question is because Christ gave us a way that is embodied in love. And therefore, sadly, but unsurprisingly, there are times when I find I have more in common with those who are living what may be a pale invitation of the way of Jesus that needs to become more deep and connected to the way, the truth, and the life. But I find I have more in common with that than I have with those who affirm the tenets of faith but fail to enter into the way of love. And by the way, I don't think that's that heretical. I think Jesus has my back here. Because Jesus says these kinds of things. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, has entered or will enter into the kingdom of God. James can say it this way. So you believe. This is my paraphrase, by the way. So you believe. Whoop-de-doo. Even the demons believe and shudder. James is not preaching to us a works righteousness where we somehow have to earn God's favor. What James is articulating is a faith that refuses to allow it to reside only in the head, but realizes that an incarnate faith always transforms our heart and gets lived out in our bodies. And by the way, that's what holiness people believe anyway. If you're here on purpose, I just want you to know, like holiness folks like Nazarenes are convinced that Christ became flesh so that we could learn to live the life of redemptive love in the body. We're not waiting to die to finally be what God wants us to be. Like Mary, the Holy Spirit can come upon us and transform us and make us to be an instrument of the love that God intended us to be at the creation. And so this morning we celebrate that Mary becomes the first character in a new story and becomes the bearer of the new creation. And it's her response. And this is so important. It is not her ability that makes her such a key character in the story. It is her response. She says to Gabriel, what are you talking about I cannot do any of these things that you are saying. But what makes her blessed is her openness and willingness for the Spirit to use her to be the instrument of the breaking in of the new creation. And if we understand what's at stake, we understand that Mary is not the last character invited into the new story. Jesus is the main character. He is the new creation. But it's not just Mary who enters in. Now it's, it's tax collectors and women caught in brokenness and it's cheaters and liars. It's, it's creepy Gentiles like us who keep getting inviting... Who, who are invited in again and again now to be like Mary, instruments of God's new creation. And the right response is this. No, there's no way we can do that. And the Lord says, you're right. There isn't. Hallelujah. But if you 
If you didn't underline it, underline it now. The response of verse 37. Today we celebrate that we serve a God not who, we don't just serve a God who is good at doing the improbable. We serve a God who is capable of the impossible. Amen. <laughs> who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. Who is able to sanctify us through and through. Who is able by the power of his spirit to use our willingness and our availability to make us a new creation. God, we come to you today. Um, recognizing that the text today can simply become an interesting tenet of Christian faith. Something we believe in our heads, something we debate in classrooms, something that can become a litmus test for who's in and who's out. It is not that our heads don't matter. It's that the story is not so much about how the man Jesus became the divine son of God. The story is about the God who created all things being unwilling to let it go. The power of the virgin birth is that the divine became human, that you have dwelt among us, that you have taken on the goodness and the brokenness of humanity so that we might be redeemed in the body. And that we might follow your way and be filled with your spirit and become instruments of your love and grace in the world. As we understand that, we, we confess that that is impossible. Um, but you are the God who not only does the impossible, but who specializes in the impossible. And so I pray for some who are here today and are participating today who are just convinced they are far from you, far from the opportunity to be, to, to be loved or to be an instrument of your value. May they hear not because I have said it, but may they hear because your spirit has confirmed it in them that you love them. And you have come to redeem them. And you have the power to transform them. May they be willing and open to what you want to do in them. May we all become reflections of the new creation today. Transform us by your love. Make us images of your love. For it's in the incarnate one's name we pray. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you